Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. It's my pleasure to welcome you here to the Clark Howard Show. Our mission to serve and empower you so you make better financial decisions in your life. In today's episode, I want to talk about one of the partial solutions to the many, many millions of housing units we're short in the United States. I've talked about many facets of this, and you may wonder why I dwell so much on dwellings. <laughs> the reason is it is the largest individual expense people have in their lives for the place they rent or the house they're buying. And it is a key determinant about how financially secure or insecure people are is what percent of their take-home pay they're devoting to housing. And as you move up the percents, you start wheezing financially where there's no give in your budget at all. Well, we have lots of things we could be doing, and you've heard me address some of them uh, recently I talked about how 3D printed houses could make a big impact, how um, doing houses in factories or more often uh, now apartment buildings are built in factories and each apartment is put on a truck and then lowered into place by a crane and you can build a lot quicker and cheaper. I want to talk about something else that is below the radar, but quietly is changing the possibilities in improving the financial picture for an existing homeowner and providing an opportunity for more available housing, potentially at a lower cost to others. And that is what the urban planners call ADUs, accessory dwelling units. And a lot of uh, communities around the country, ADUs are illegal or against zoning, but they appear anyway, where people will sneak in a garage apartment or something like that, or build out a basement apartment, or they will build a detached garage. It supposedly has an office over it, but is actually a rental unit, an apartment. But in many other jurisdictions, this is now part of the code, the zoning code locally, where you can have an ADU. So to give you the sense of the role this plays, somebody already owns their land. And they can build, with an ADU, they build a small structure, or as is commonly done in a lot of cities in the Northeast and Midwest is there will be a detached garage with a, above it is a walk up with an apartment. And so you're able to provide somebody with potentially affordable housing and you have a steady revenue stream. 
over the years, I've owned several properties with an ADU. And I've loved having the rental income uh, just because I'm like that, right? And so the tenants have always loved the situation because they're in a nice neighborhood and they've got a smaller but nice place to live and they're paying an affordable rent. And then for you, it's obvious. It's like when I get calls from people, think about how often someone will call me who's a Uh, buying a home, and they're thinking about buying a duplex. Why are they buying a duplex? They live in one side, they generate rental income on the other side. And if you've heard me enough years, you always hear me when I'm talking to somebody who's thinking of buying a duplex. I'm always saying, why don't you buy a place that has, it's a single family home that has a basement you can rent out or the garage apartment I was referring to that this is an income opportunity and an opportunity to deal with the millions of homes short we are in the country. I saw an estimate the other day that said they were, we were 4 million housing units short in the United States right now. So another that said we were 3.5 million short. The reality is, for the reasons I discussed recently on the podcast, we are way, way short. And I believe that ADUs are part of the solution. But again, government tends to be behind the times generally, where new ways of doing things meet automatic institutional resistance, and local governments could be a roadblock to doing this kind of thing that could help with our housing affordability problems. All right, Clark, speaking of Construction, Joe in Washington says, I'm currently getting bids from contractors for a home project that will cost around $10,000. One highly rated contractor has come back to me offering an additional 10% discount if I pay in cash, the green stuff. In spite of his AAA reputation, I'm now very hesitant to work with someone who would have tax avoidance intentions. I can think of no other reasons for wanting cash. Am I missing something? So, Joe, I mean, your first instinct is... Probably more correct, but it's actually not tax avoidance. That is tax evasion. Tax avoidance is when you do something legal that allows you to avoid tax. Tax evasion is when you do something illegal to avoid tax, which is getting paid under the table so that you avoid the reported income. So there's a few things that worry me here. One paying cash, what happens if the person walks on the job and they already have your money? Two, and this may or may not be a true character test, but someone who up front is telling you that the way they do business is to uh, break the law, how good are they going to be at honoring their commitments to you and the job you would have them do? But paying them this way, I would much rather pay 10% more and know that everything was open and above board and that permits that are required are being pulled. Because, you know, you go to sell a property now, you have to disclose on the seller's disclosure form if you had any work done on your property without a permit being pulled. And if you lie on that and you later sell your home, that can come back to bite you by itself. So... Don't recommend that you do business that way. 
And then Monica in Missouri says, do you have any insight as to whether the cost of lumber will be returning to normal anytime soon? We were planning on redoing our deck with composite decking, but we're looking at the cost of construction at four times what it was pre-COVID. Should we wait it out or just bite the bullet? You know, lumber price prices have actually tripled in just the last year, and it's an all-time record high price. So this is a terrible, terrible problem. What is going to bring it back down to earth is when people do just what you're thinking of doing, which is wait it out. That if you can live without the deck, just a little, the repair or replacement of your existing deck, just a little while longer, what happens is eventually you end up in a position where the prices come back down. As, as I read recently, and I may have shared with you, that the actual timber farms aren't making out on this. It is the lumber mills that there's been a consolidation in the ownership of the mills. And so the mills have too much control of pricing right now. And they will only lose that control as the number of people buying lumber, uh, you know, hit that price point where they say, nope, just not going to do it right now. Or in cases where there's product substitution, when you can use any time any item spikes to a point where the price is no longer manageable, people product substitute. That's what we do in the supermarket every day we're in is when something is too expensive, we buy something else. And there's only so many alternatives with something like doing your deck. So in your case, waiting it out a while would be, in my mind, the smart move. We're waiting it out on our fence too. But you with a fence could easily product substitute with something made of some form of plastic instead of doing wood. We looked it up, but wood. it's so much more expensive. Because I won't get into it. That's, Why not? I'll talk to you Why off not? the air. Because other get, people need your help. No, let's do the Krista. No. Okay. Stephen Alabama just moved into a smart home. It's set up for a big security company at $65 a month. But 65 we, a month? 65 a month? But we chose not to get it. The lowest monthly fee is $46, according to the sales rep. Everything can be controlled with my smartphone, but I'm not a tech guy. I like the idea of a smart home and security, but not at those prices and with a three-year contract. <laughs> the system was installed by the security company 18 months ago. At least that's what the rep said. My question is, do I have any other options to use this smart equipment with another company that's more in your price range? None of the equipment says the company's name. I do have Google Home Fiber, which might make a difference. I just want cheap and easy. Please help. So Steve, 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 this particular burglar alarm company is one that has a very sordid reputation and charging you that kind of money per month is highway robbery or home robbery. And then requiring you sign a three-year contract on equipment that's already been installed is salt in the wounds. You know, you could just bypass all that and you could get one of these self-install ultra smart burglar alarm systems. Uh, I did that with Ring. There are several alternatives now. The reason I did Ring is the monthly monitoring is $8 a month when you pay a year up front 100 bucks. The system right now is on sale at Costco for $179 
for a full 10-piece wireless security system from Ring. It has uh, cellular backup, works on your internet backbone, the Google Fiber, it'll work perfectly, and you get all the information right on your cell phone, just like they're talking about for all that money. And if you just heard a stray noise, I got to tell you what it is. Your pocket was It's my Android phone. Heard me say, however I said Google, it thought I was asking it a question, but it didn't understand my question Uh and was speaking back to me. That's kind of creepy, isn't it? Yeah. Yep. Okay. Tim in California says, do you have to refreeze your credit annually? And if not, how long does a freeze last? All right. Wonderful question. When credit freezes first came into being... Uh, in state statutes, California being the first ever to have credit freeze, and then state by state went along. And then uh, we now have free credit freezes as a national law. In the old days, you would have to re-up your freeze, depending on the state law, as often as once a year or more often once every three years. Under the federal law, you're under complete control. You put a credit freeze in place for an indefinite period, it stays essentially forever. You can thaw it whenever you want, and you can add it back whenever you want. So all the flexibility is yours. Don't worry about the old thing of having to re-put, you have to actually, under the laws, I'm thinking back, you had to start it all over every so often, every one to three years. None of that anymore. Hey, by the way, the job market is heating up to your advantage as a worker. And I want to give you a couple of examples straight ahead. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Just recently on our podcast, we had two truck drivers who were on our show asking us questions. And just days before, I was doing a briefing for new recruits at our state guard that I'm a state guard member. And two of the people that were signing up to be state guardsmen were also truck drivers. And The industry is one that is way, way, way short of personnel. And the pay that people are getting is going steadily up. In fact, there's an item that just posted in the Wall Street Journal that one of the big trucking companies, the largest in North America, is raising pay for certified drivers 40%, So. People just graduating from truck driving school now can make as much as 60000 a year. By comparison, according to federal stats, the average pay of drivers, even including experienced drivers, as recently as a year ago was forty seven grand. That's how extreme the shortage of drivers is right now. So many goods move uh, with trucks 
trains, bus, um, trucks, trains, and ships all working together multimodal. But the final mile is almost always, it's, that's an expression, not a literal mile, is almost always by truck. And they're just flat out are not near enough drivers to do the work. And we're seeing this in more and more job categories where the shortage of personnel is such that with these are called middle skilled jobs that you go and you get trained. And now lots of the truck trucking companies will provide you with the training or sponsor you at a driver's school. And then you're out working before you know it and you're making decent money. Driving a truck is not for everybody. It is brutally difficult work with long hours, often away from home for extended periods of time. It's tough on families. But the reality is the money that is available now is effectively the best it's ever been because supply and demand at work. And I want to give you some really, really positive news. Brand new report from the Federal Reserve has found that businesses turned out to be, small businesses, turned out to be far more resilient through coronavirus than anybody anticipated. And so companies closed in larger numbers than they historically do in a year, but not brutal numbers, much, much less dislocation than originally anticipated. The businesses that got demolished, according to the Federal Reserve, are things that involve close person-to-person contact. Think of hair salons, nail salons, anything like that where people were afraid to do those activities or they lived in a jurisdiction where the activities were not permitted for strong long periods of time, and of course, restaurants. But even in the restaurant business, there are huge differences in which restaurants did well and which did not. Those that were able to adapt with technology adapt with carryout and delivery. Those, many did better than they were doing before. It was places that depended particularly on finer dining, where the experience of sitting together in a restaurant was key. Those are the places that got eaten up. So we've got two conflicting things at once. It's normal that a lot of businesses close each year. Typically, more than half a million businesses close each year. This year, it will be uh, somewhere like 30% more than normal, but not anything like the calamitous kind of closing rate that was expected. At the same time, though, the amount of vacant retail space is humongous. And so if you want to expand the business you already have or you want to open one, your ability to negotiate terms, conditions, and rent, the best they've been in forever. So things did not go as bad as we thought a year ago. And at the same time, 
the table is set for a really, really strong small business recovery. Krista? Tracy in Texas has a tip for you. I recently bought a car from a dealership and I had financing already secured with my credit union in advance. Guess what? The dealership said they charge a $500 fee for outside financing. I went with the dealer's financing and refinanced the loan with my credit union ASAP before I made the first payment with the dealer's financing. So I've never heard of an outside financing fee. I am surprised that something like that is even legal. Seriously. It is abusive. And there's no reason for a car dealer to play that dirty game because the reality is car dealers capture almost all the financing business anyway. There aren't that many people who do the upfront of getting pre-approved for a loan, which is what everybody should do, but not that many people do that. So having a junk fee like that means you're never going to see that customer ever again. And Justin in Georgia says, we're currently a one-car family and I work at home. However, I'm starting to get antsy about getting out. I can afford to buy a used car outright, but I'll feel dumb if, I pur- if purchase prices plummet shortly after the buy. Any idea of the wait time before inflated prices normalize if I choose to hold my breath? Or should I just go ahead and find something now? So we don't know the trend line on when prices will be more normalized. But there's a key term. You use the word. Let me look at that again. Car. You said the word car. Because <laughs> the greatest run-up in prices, new and used, has been on SUVs and crossovers. A lot of car models are still fairly unloved. So you may pay a slightly inflated price buying a used vehicle now that's a car but if you're okay with a passenger car instead of an SUV or crossover or a pickup truck, you will probably do well enough on that used vehicle paying cash for it and just enjoy it. And don't worry about the fact that the spike in vehicle prices will disappear probably in 22. You'll have a whole year you'll get to enjoy the vehicle in the meantime. Philip in Tennessee says, I've closed my account at a big mega bank. My question is, I have a credit card from them that I will never use. What is best, cancel it or just ignore it and never use it? If it has no annual fee, just leave it be. If you don't use it at all, eventually the giant monster mega bank is going to send you a nasty gram and say they're going to close your account. But you'll have running time with that being part of your credit mix and leaving it open is the best choice. If you're never going to use it, though, cut the card up so that if someone uh, ever was able to get your things in your home or stealing your wallet or whatever, they won't have that actual plastic eliminating a problem with somebody pretending to be you and you having to clean up the mess afterwards. But leave the account in existence. Antonia, Mississippi says, I made good money when I was young and built up an 800 plus score. Being young and naive, I drank the Kool-Aid the credit card companies were serving me and got in over my head with credit card debt. My industry tanked and so did my employment and finances. Still, I managed to pay off all my debt, but creditors were horribly insensitive. A rounding error left a balance of one cent on one of my closed accounts. They sent me a bill every month for two years attempting to collect it. 
Traumatized, I refused to play with them anymore, so I didn't. For over 10 years now, no debt, no credit cards, just regular bank checking and debit, and debit cards. I only bought things I had the money to pay for in full. Today, I own several houses. I have zero debt. I have a decent income, and I've always paid everything on time. Last week, I checked my credit score for the first time since the fiasco. It's literally zero. No files, no score. They consider me a deadbeat. Now what? This is something that is really crazy. But if you don't use credit at all, you go invisible. And then there are other ways that can come back to hurt you. As an example, when you apply for a job, you come up no record, no file, then an employer may eliminate you as a candidate. Your auto insurance provider or homeowner's insurance provider could choose to not renew you or charge you higher premiums because of a lack of a credit file. I know this sounds weird, but the idea of you getting a credit card, and now you're now it's going to be tough getting one because you have no credit file, uh, having a credit card just so that you establish uh, a, a score and an existence with Equifax, TransUnion, and Experian, I think would be worth it. How are you going to get that card? Check out the pedal card. The pedal card uses different criteria than traditional credit card issuers. They don't use FICO scoring to decide. P-E-T-A-L card.com. And they issue a Visa card. And it will allow you to be part of the whole credit scoring and reporting stuff without you having to have already been part of it if you qualify under the criteria that they use at pedal card. The other alternative would be at a credit union to get a credit card from them with a loan limit just so you can reestablish a credit identity. But what a good problem to have. What a comeback story. Yeah. And what a good problem to have that you owe nothing to anybody. You own all those homes. You cleaned up everything that happened with getting it over your head with credit card debt. But don't take the long wrong lesson from it because you learned, you took care of the problem. So the ongoing solution is not never having a credit card. Is that too many negatives right there? That made sense, right? Yeah. Okay. So I think that it would actually be worth it having a card. I could say that. I want to thank you for being a part of Team Clark. If you enjoy our podcast, I hope you'll subscribe, review us, share us with your friends. 